Leo Frank, The Lynching of a Guilty Man Quote, I am as innocent today as I was one year ago. End quote. Leo Frank By the generally accepted definition of lynching, quote, any assemblage of three or more persons which shall exercise or attempt to exercise by physical violence and without authority of law any power of correction or punishment. End quote. Frank's murder on August 17, 1915, at the hands of his kidnappers, certainly qualified. But the lynching of Leo Frank was quite dissimilar from all other known lynchings in the South. The white men who planned and carried out the act against one of their own race were not provoked by the fervor of a single moment. They were not the whiskey-soaked, thrill-seeking, white trash or innocent bystanders swept up by mob passions. The American Israelite Quote, The word mob does not seem descriptive, for these men did not display the ordinary characteristics of a mob. There was no outburst of rage, no disorder. The whole thing was done with order, method, and precision, and with a military attention to details. Lynching mobs are usually composed of riffraff, but this one consisted of leading citizens in the community, then prominent in business and social circles, and even in church. End quote. Scholars who have analyzed the events surrounding the lynching of Leo Frank, the ninth lynching in Georgia that year, have settled on some basic elements of the incident. On August 17th, after several weeks of military planning, 25 of Georgia's most prominent white leaders in eight automobiles caravaned to Milledgeville State Prison, where Frank was being held cut the telephone lines, overpowered the guards, and snatched Frank from his prison cell. In solemn procession, they drove back across the state to Mary Fagan's hometown. The men told Frank that they were there to carry out the verdict as it had been rendered and reaffirmed again and again by 13 judicial bodies. Resigned to his fate, Frank asked that his wedding ring be returned to his wife, a request that the lynchers honored. Leo Frank was then hanged from an oak tree in a section of Marietta known as Frey's Gin. A handkerchief was placed respectfully over the face of the victim, such that the body cannot even be positively identified in the photographs, something that was never done when the victim was black. The body of Leo Frank was removed from Georgia, and interred in his family's plot at Mount Carmel Cemetery in New York, where it is today marked by a modest headstone. But his death at the hands of vigilantes on August 17, 1915, did not end the intrigue and mystery surrounding the Frank case. Answers to Unanswered Questions Jews have embraced the Leo Frank case as an almost sacred American metaphor for the mythic age-old struggle of the Jewish people and scholars supporting that view have manipulated the facts of the case to reinforce that interpretation. Frank, they say, was wholly innocent of the murder of Mary Fagan, and unfairly persecuted by a hostile people and system like that of Pharaoh's Egypt. His death stands as proof of the need for American Jewish unity for mutual empowerment and protection. 
Just beneath the surface of that narrative of Jewish suffering is a very visible undercurrent, a not-so-subtle indictment against a specific black man for both the murder of Mary Fagan and the, quote, anti-Semitic, end quote, upheaval that engulfed the Jewish people of Atlanta, America, and the world. That racialized interpretation expands this Jewish tale into a commentary on the storied relationship between blacks and Jews. For many Jews, the Fagan murder was the crime of a black man, and so blacks must be added to the ranks of the historical oppressors of the Jewish people. That construction is a highly controversial point of view, which must be interrogated from a perspective never before applied to the case. Now that the framework of the murder, the trial, and the lynching of Leo Frank has been presented, we must take on individual aspects of the case to discern whether the previously drawn conclusions are still valid. Leo Frank had a hearing in front of more than a dozen official judicial bodies, all of which concluded that he was legitimately found guilty. But James Conley, the black man Frank's Jewish supporters have accused of the crime, has never had a hearing of any type. Some claim he died in 1962. Others say he died in the 1970s, though no proof exists of either claim. Even so, Conley has been etched in the American Jewish consciousness as a villain next to the devil himself. Our re-examination of the Frank case will determine whether James Conley's ignominious fate as an enemy to the Jews is deserved. In targeting the various pillars of the Leo Frank legend, we start where the case appeared to end, with the lynching of Leo Frank at Frey's Gin in Marietta, Georgia. The Strange Retreat of Leo Frank's Army The lynching of Leo Frank outraged the Jewish people who had followed the case as a cause celebre, but not enough, apparently, for them to use any of their previously deployed resources to track down Frank's murderers. This determined and uniform reluctance, almost as if their intent was to protect the perpetrators, has served only to focus more attention on those responsible for Frank's demise. Let us look at what did not happen after Frank's lynching, and then move on to a surprising examination of those assassins who have been charged with Frank's murder, the so-called Knights of Mary Fagan. Leo Frank's executioners were characterized by their peers as, quote, sober, intelligent, of established good name and character, good American citizens, end quote. Their identities seem to have been well known in Georgia and included, quote, a clergyman, two former superior court justices, an ex-sheriff, end quote. Yet, no serious attempt was made to arrest prosecute, or punish them on either a local, state, or federal level. There was the initial bluster of editorials and government-offered rewards, much of the outrage coming from Georgia officials that included Governor Nathaniel E. Harris, who condemned the lynching and offered a hefty bounty for the arrest of those responsible. But Frank's international team of supporters and advocates— who had so vociferously screamed for the blood of, quote, the Negro, end quote, James Conley, made no attempt to go after Frank's actual killers. Oddly, the Frank family announced it, quote, would take no active part in any attempt to apprehend and convict the members of the lynching party, end quote. 
And when the state of Georgia officially concluded that the lynchers were, quote, unknown parties, end quote, the hyper-litigious Frank team simply let it go at that. Names of the participants were emerging within minutes of the lynching, yet no prominent Jews in or outside Georgia pursued any legal action against those individuals. Fear had never caused the Jews to refrain from applying the most aggressive tactics against Frank's accusers. Yet, they pursued no federal or international action, engaged no detective agencies, pressed no lawsuits through any court. Remarkably, there were no retaliatory actions taken that one would expect from a people who had liberally used and abused their range of powers as never before in the cause of Leo Frank. On the day that top Gentile officials in Georgia were establishing rewards for the capture of the lynchers, Rich's department store, the largest Jewish-owned retailer, advertised not a reward, but slipper buckles for 39 cents, lion's tooth powder for 19 cents, and petticoats for $1.19. In its post-lynching issue, the American Israelite, the most prominent national Jewish newspaper, counseled. Quote, All talk of offering a reward for the conviction of the Georgia lynchers and all action in that direction except by the constituted authorities of the state of Georgia should cease at once. End quote. Jews, the paper wrote, were, quote, already suffering on account of the sentimental nonsense of a lot of fool friends who are not Jews and a lot of Jews who are fools. End quote. It strongly advised Jews, quote, to retire to the rear and call off their friends, end quote. Rewards and the talk of rewards quickly evaporated, and despite many promising leads to the identity of the lynchers, not a penny of those rewards was ever dispersed. Small efforts were made by rank-and-file citizens to establish reward funds, but all petered out for lack of leadership and interest. Dr. Cyrus Adler, the chairman of the American Jewish Committee, declared that he and his organization would not join a group of Christians and Jews that formed to aid Georgia in the pursuit of the lynchers. Adler said that investigating the lynching was for Georgia authorities, quote, alone, end quote. The Albert Lasker finance detectives and agents spared no expense in buying and inventing, quote, evidence, end quote, to free their man, without regard to the rising anger of the citizenry over those tactics. Estimates of Lasker's contribution to the post-trial Leo Frank operation range as high as $120,000. Today's equivalent, $16 million. But nary a penny went toward tracking the kidnapper killers of Leo M. Frank. Is there any doubt that $1,000 dropped in the middle of Marietta, where the average annual earnings in 1915 were $687 and the price of a new home was $3,200, would lead to some crack in the estimated 40-man lynching team? Frank's main attorney and the most prominent Jew in America, Louis Marshall, who had been given the names of some of the actual murderers, instead publicly declared that Georgia newspapermen, quote, Tom Watson is the murderer of Leo Frank, end quote. And in a statement printed in the New York Times on August 18th, 
just one day after the lynching, Attorney Marshall was careful not to demand a full investigation, and would only refer generally to the actual killers as a, quote, mob of assassins, end quote. He was joined in the same Times article by Frank's supporters, who, strangely, placed more emphasis on Watson's culpability than on that of the lynchers or the state officials responsible for their apprehension. The American Israelite had regularly reprinted the New York Times's commentary and added its own where required. But only a few days after the lynching and without a single arrest having been made, the paper titled its article, quote, A Few Final Words in the Frank Case, end quote, and therein terminated further discussion of the issue. Case closed. Leo Frank's Mystery Assassins Knights of Mary Fagan. Quote, it's fascinating the way it was planned. It was like the, end quote, Israeli, quote, raid on Entebbe. It was, end quote, a, quote, very well-oiled machine, end quote. Steve Oney. As scholars began to reconsider the case 50 years after the fact, they collectively affixed the name, quote, Knights of Mary Fagan, end quote, to the lynchers, and charged them with being the sole perpetrators of the crime. The group has been described as, quote, a secret order whose avowed purpose was to avenge Mary Fagan's death, end quote. But their reputation for organized terrorism has grown far beyond the lynching of Leo Frank. The Knights of Mary Fagan have been credited by these same writers and scholars as being the founding members of America's notorious racial terrorists, the Ku Klux Klan. The original Klan formed immediately after the Civil War, but dissolved after successfully impregnating American society and government with its racial ideology. Its rebirth in the 1910s, a response to increasing black political and economic activism, saw the new incarnation of the Klan grow to a reputed membership of over 5 million. Obviously, the birth of the most violent racial terrorists in American history is no less significant to blacks than the founding of German Nazism is to Jews. But anyone attempting to track the history of the so-called Knights of Mary Fagan will find that the group has almost no verifiable record of existence at all. No newspaper articles chronicle its activities. No organizational records plot its development. No law enforcement or intelligence agencies log its movements. No private correspondence or local memoirs make reference to this mysterious group said to be the progenitors of American racial terrorism. The strange career of the Knights of Mary Fagan begins not in Georgia, but 900 miles away in New York City. The first and only mention of this alleged team of assassins is found in a brief reference in the very newspaper now conceded to have been an avowed member of the Leo Frank defense team. The New York Times, under Adolf Ox, handled the post-trial propaganda for the Frank team, and in its June 26, 1915 issue, seven weeks before the August 17th lynching, an anonymously written, quote, special, end quote, article titled, quote, Violence Feared in Atlanta Today, end quote, 
purports to describe the reaction of Georgians to their governor's June 21st commutation of Frank's death sentence. It reports that, quote, authorities, end quote, are, quote, apprehensive, end quote, because of, quote, the number of secret mass meetings, end quote, held in several towns. The last paragraph of the article identifies Frank's future assassins. Quote, One of the strangest of these meetings is reported to have been held at Marietta, where Mary Fagan is buried. 150 citizens are said to have met at Mary Fagan's grave and formed an oath-bound organization to avenge her death. This body is to be known as the Knights of Mary Fagan, and it is the purpose of the organizers to form lodges over Georgia, the members being pledged never to rest until the murder of the girl has been avenged. There seems to be little doubt that such a body has been formed. End quote. The text here reports on a, quote, mass meeting, end quote, that was known to and attended by the, quote, masses, end quote, in Marietta, Georgia, but that somehow escaped the notice of the three Atlanta-based dailies just 20 miles away, which had been mercilessly competing to break any news of the Leo Frank case. No source is given for the New York Times' scoop, and not even the weekly Marietta Journal mentioned any of the alleged activity. The American Israelite ran a curious contribution to the Times' lone Knights claim. It is notable not only for its premonition of events to come, but also for its familial links to the New York Times. Adolf Ox was married to Effie Wise, whose father, Isaac Meyer Wise, founded the Israelite and whose brother then ran it. Leo Wise added to the intrigue in his July 22nd issue. Quote, Two weeks ago, the Israelite stated with confidence that the attempt to revive the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia did not meet with any noticeable success. But the confidence was not well placed for, by all accounts, some such outlaw organization having for its purpose the lynching of Frank has been established. This information comes from Atlanta by way of a special dispatch to the New York Times, and is trustworthy where an Associated Press dispatch could not be accepted because the representatives of the latter have been under the same intimidating influences which were in evidence from the moment Frank was charged with the murder of Mary Fagan. End quote. The Israelite did not name this group, but instead linked, quote, some such outlaw organization, end quote, to the Ku Klux Klan. Speaking to its international Jewish readership, the Israelite editor insisted that the only legitimate source for future news of the Leo Frank case would be the paper of his brother-in-law, Ox's New York Times. Despite the worldwide coverage and the multitude of published verbiage on the case at that time, the sparse and fleeting mention, in a newspaper that served as Frank's public relations arm, is the only reference to the alleged, quote, secret meetings, end quote, or to the existence of the Knights of Mary Fagan. And though the group is forecasted, quote, to form lodges over Georgia, end quote, there is no further evidence of such activity in any form. Such was the public's outrage over Slayton's action in Georgia that the local papers would have gladly aided with publicity, any attempts to set up lodges for the purpose of avenging the death of Mary Fagan. 
the knights would have sought such publicity, not shunned it, and just about every white man would have proudly joined. The idea that there was some power in Georgia from which the group needed to hide is without merit. The only photographs of Frank's lynching show white Georgians standing proudly next to the body, some straining to be included in the picture. Nevertheless, even after the actual lynching of Leo Frank on August 17th, the moniker Knights of Mary Fagan is not mentioned or reported in any of the worldwide newspaper coverage. Similarly, the literature and scholarship addressing the prodigious rise of the Ku Klux Klan in that era are devoid of any mention of the group, even though it is claimed by many to be the Klan's parent organization. The reappearance of the so-called Knights of Mary Fagan in print would not occur for nearly half a century, when a new layer of intrigue was added to the Frank case. In 1965, the popular Jewish writer Harry Golden pulled the New York Times' Knights from obscurity when he authored a book on the Frank case, A Little Girl is Dead, wherein, for the first time, the Knights are directly credited with Frank's murder. Golden was a beloved white liberal, well-known in civil rights circles, who at the time was the publisher of the southern Jewish newspaper, Carolina Israelite. He was as clear as an editor could be about his claim. Quote, The name, Knights of Mary Fagan, first appeared in the Jeffersonian, in the issue of June 24, end quote, 1915, quote, the issue that condemned Slayton's commutation. Tom Watson, in each issue thereafter, professed to see the great, invisible power of these knights. End quote. Golden offers researchers a specific issue of Watson's local Georgia newspaper to confirm his account of the birth of the Knights of Mary Fagan. One should recall that Watson's vitriolic advocacy for Leo Frank's execution made him, for many, the voice of Georgia justice. He repudiated Governor Slayton for commuting Frank's death sentence, and he later cheered the lynching and the lynchers, who he believed had carried out a legal ruling of the Georgia courts. And it is for that cheerleading role that Watson was blamed by Frank's own legal team for the crime. So, Golden's mention of Tom Watson and his Jeffersonian newspaper as the source of the term, quote, Knights of Mary Fagan, end quote, appears plausible. It is strange, then, that the June 24, 1915, issue of the Jeffersonian has no such reference to the Knights at all. Nor is the group mentioned in any subsequent, or previous, issue of the weekly paper, the last issue being printed in 1917. His other publication, a monthly titled Watson's Magazine, dealt with the Leo Frank case extensively and it is likewise devoid of any mention of the Knights. Harry Golden's private notes, made during the preparation of his book, A Little Girl is Dead, shed light on his thought process. On the specific issue of the Knights, his draft version of the book refers to the September 9, 1915 issue of the Jeffersonian. Yet again, a careful review of that issue contradicts Golden and shows that Watson proudly refers to the lynchers as the, quote, Cobb County Vigilantes, end quote, and then later as, quote, the Vigilantes, end quote, 
not as the, quote, Knights of Mary Fagan, end quote. Clearly, Watson would have been the first to join such an organization and to report on its noble activities. Yet he knew nothing of the Phantom Group. Tom Watson and his publications are not the source of the Knights of Mary Fagan, and it is a mystery why Golden consciously conferred upon Watson fatherhood of the enigmatic group. In 1968, Leonard Dinnerstein followed on the heels of Golden in his own book on the subject, The Leo Frank Case, and he likewise claimed that Frank's lynchers were these, quote, Knights of Mary Fagan, end quote and further credited them with originating the Ku Klux Klan. But his source for that fantastic assertion is none other than Harry Golden and his flawed book, A Little Girl is Dead, page 300. Clearly uncomfortable with Golden's claims about the Knights, Dinnerstein wrote in a footnote, quote, I questioned Golden about the source for this information. He replied that he had heard it said and then had it confirmed in an interview with one of the lynchers and a son of this lyncher. End quote. Steve Oney also promotes the Knights in his 2003 book, And the Dead Shall Rise, and cites only the same dubious New York Times article. He also takes unsupportable liberties when he adds, but provides no citation for, his claim that, quote, Several of the so-called Knights of Mary Fagan were present, end quote, before the prison commission to argue against the commutation of Leo Frank's death sentence. Golden died in 1981, but the 2007 edition of the Encyclopedia Judaica carries his embellishment of the Knights' fable. Quote, Watson helped found the Knights of Mary Fagan an anti-Semitic society which sought to organize a boycott of Jewish stores and businesses throughout Georgia. End quote. Oni joins Golden and Dinnerstein, who have stitched the knight's tale together from a wispy assortment of unidentified, unnamed, undocumented innuendos, rumors, and flights of imagination. After consulting the authors of the three standard books on the Leo Frank case, we find that the mystery of the origin of the Knights of Mary Fagan only deepens. Be with us again next time when we present the next chapter of The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews, Volume 3, The Leo Frank Case, The Lynching of a Guilty Man. Prepared by the Historical Research Department of the Nation of Islam, Chicago, Illinois. Copyright 2016 by Latimer Associates. All rights reserved. Published in audiobook form by the American Mercury with permission of the Historical Research Department of the Nation of Islam.